Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for all that you're doing. God, our prayer is that you would invigorate us and bless us by the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, for this special Sabbath. Thank you, Lord, that we can reflect what you did for us 2,000 years ago. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' holy name, amen. As you looked on your bulletin, the sermon that's titled there says Scary Mary and Cheater Peter. It's been changed to the CSI of the resurrection. The CSI of the resurrection. I've been known for quirky titles, and I'll probably be known for quirky titles all the way till the second coming. But uh, I, it's, sometimes I have to pull the title out first before I actually develop the subject and I, you know, try to understand what the Spirit is saying. We've been talking about this the last few weeks, but ladies and gentlemen, I just want to remind you again that services are going to be starting very soon. God is preparing the way. We've been seeing some miracles take place, and we're excited what's going to happen. Uh, just to let you guys know, and this is all glory to God, uh, we went to the conference, and the conference has given us funding for this Patterson Church plant. Can you say amen to that? For three years. So I really believe God's opening the door for something powerful. Amen. Uh, just to let you know, our very first Sabbath where we're going to have worship services is going to be June 7th. So mark your calendar if, if that's, uh, you know, series, we've got to still make sure we're here. But uh, for those who are interested in being part of this church plant, please mark your calendars. June 7th is going to be uh, the very first worship Sabbath. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking a little bit uh, about the resurrection and uh, when you think about the resurrection and you think about things that took place 2,000 years ago, a lot of people have questions. You know, people begin to argue about all sorts of things during this time as well. People begin to talk about Easter. And they'll say things like, you shouldn't celebrate Easter because it's related to the pagan god Ishtar. And what happens is uh, a, an opportunity to talk about what Jesus has done for us 2,000 years ago gets muddled in this kind of controversy. Uh, same with Christmas time. We have people so worried about Nimrod's birthday or whatever's happening. And what happens is an opportunity uh, for us to be able to share the gospel at probably one of the rare times when the world is actually open is missed. Sometimes as Christians, we're shooting everywhere else but the target, right. Right? right? And so it is during this time that we're taking this opportunity to reflect upon the resurrection and what Jesus has done for us. Amen? All right. It was very interesting. I've been thinking about the resurrection, and this morning I came across some very interesting quotations. You know, the secular world, they reject what Jesus has done for us. They believe the idea of a resurrection is completely false and that scientific naturalism is the way to go. There is no God. And it's interesting because there is a debate that's raging in the world over these various topics. I was reading the story about a man by the name of David Berlinski. Anybody ever heard of David Berlinski? He's a well-known mathematician. He has, he's a scientist. He's an agnostic. He is not a Christian. He's not even sure if there is a God. But he wrote this book called The Devil's Delusion. And here he was talking about science, scientific naturalism, atheism. And he said this in a series of questions in this book. Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? 
Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergency of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Has the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists, physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long that it is not a religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not even close. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been for a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion within the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. And he says this thing because, ladies and gentlemen, science does not have the answers that we need. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, God has put eternity in the heart of man. And this is something that science cannot figure out. Even the Bible says, can thou by searching find God? Man by his own abilities and his capabilities will never be able to find God on his own. He needs God to help him find God. Amen? And so as we reflect upon this great event that is set in stone, or I should say when the stone was rolled away, looking back 2,000 years ago, ladies and gentlemen, what we begin to discover is the foundation, one of the pillars of the foundation of the Christian faith, and that is the resurrection. A very unusual event took place 2,000 years ago. Extra-biblical sources describe certain dynamics that were taking place during that time. History records rulers and kings and governors who are quite uh, puzzled by the events that were taking place. Christians themselves, or excuse me, believers, Jewish believers at that time, did not quite understand what was taking place when Jesus died on the cross and when he resurrected. Ladies and gentlemen, today there is really nobody that denies that Jesus existed. Atheist scholars understand that Jesus existed. Muslim scholars exi believe that Jesus existed. Greek scholars believe that Jesus existed and he also died for us. Pagan scholars believe that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. Christian scholars, over and over again, no one denies that Jesus died on the cross. But the question is, what happened afterwards? And so what we're going to do is we're going to begin a CSI. Do you know what CSI stands for? You guys watch a television show, apparently. Crime scene investigation. We're going to be taking a look 2,000 years ago. We're going to be talking to all sorts of people. We're going to take a good look at some of the evidence and find out why it's even relevant to us. We're going to be using the most powerful tool that we have available, the most accurate record given to mankind, and that is the Holy Scriptures. Amen? All right. The resurrection of Jesus has been a mysterious event in the minds of many. The idea of one coming back from death seems impossible. However, irrefutable, irrefutable proof of what took place 2,000 years ago is still, is still available for evaluation. In this study, we will analyze some of the events surrounding the resurrection and talk with eyewitnesses. We're going to find out what took place 2,000 years ago. We're going to analyze the event, see what was happening and leave with great conclusions. Amen? Amen? Amen. When we are taking a good look at that empty tomb, oftentimes people begin to become skeptical. But what we're going to be looking at, five strands of evidence really quickly, five strands of evidence regarding the resurrection, and then we're going to be talking to eyewitnesses and find out what they encountered during that event 2,000 years ago.
Christian apologists will oftentimes state the five E's of the resurrection. The five E's of the resurrection. Number one, execution. Number two, early writings. Number three, er empty tomb. Number four, eyewitnesses. And number five, the emergence of the early church. And these are five irrefutable proofs that Jesus resurrected from the grave. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, how do these five strands of truth prove that Jesus resurrected from the grave? All right, when we take a good look at the first one, the execution. Ladies and gentlemen, Roman soldiers were trained in killing people. They were trained to put people to death. And so when they crucified Jesus, it was the intent of putting him to death. The execution of Jesus has not been refuted by any scholar. Extra-biblical sources show that Jesus was there and that he died during that time. As I said before, Muslim scholars, Greek scholars, uh, pagan scholars, Christian scholars, all accept that Jesus died on a cross for us. Number two, early writings. Early writings. When we actually studied the scriptures, did you know the earliest apostle creed was describing the resurrection. Take your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is considered by biblical scholars the earliest creed by the apostles. A creed is simply a statement of belief. But there apparently was a creed that was being passed around by the early church, and it was regarding the resurrection of Jesus. Take your Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. We're going to start going rapid fire, okay? Now watch what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 3. Here it is. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died, which also I received. Take a good look at that. Let's rewind a little bit. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now what Paul begins to state, and based upon the structure, seems to be some kind of creed that the apostles were passing out. 1 Corinthians was actually written around A.D. 51 to A.D. 53. But watch this particular kind of creed or this statement of belief. Paul says, this is what was given to me, now I'm passing it off to you. Now watch this statement of belief. Take a good look at this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, that was by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James and all the apostles. Take a good look at what Paul is saying, ladies and gentlemen. Here he is saying, look, I want to present to you eyewitness accounts of people who were actually in um, a very special... Uh, um, relationships with Jesus, these people are still alive and they had an experience with Jesus. And not only that he died, but that he resurrected. So early writings were confirming that this was taking place. What's interesting, this was written out AD 51. The crucifixion actually took place AD 31. So within 20 years, this information was being spread apart, spread to the entire world. Number three, empty tomb. No scholar denies that the tomb was empty. But the question they have is, why was the tomb empty? Why was the tomb empty? No one denies that there wasn't a body, or that there is a body there, excuse me. No one's denying that fact. No body there. And but what the question is, wait a minute, what happened to the body of Jesus? What happened to the body of Jesus? It apparently disappeared. Number four, eyewitnesses. What is so remarkable is that the very first people, the Bible um, shows us that who actually were witnesses of Jesus resurrecting were women. 
which is very interesting because women and shepherds were both dismissed in a court of law. Now just think about this. Here you are, you're trying to prove your case. Right? You're trying to fabricate an argument that Jesus rose from the grave. Would you pick strong, credible, weak uh, witnesses, or would you pick, would you pick, excuse me, would you pick people who were considered not so credible? Ladies and gentlemen, here's the thing. If the disciples were lying about the whole thing, they would not be having women testifying of this. Because in a Jewish court system, this would be immediately dismissed. However, what is so unique about the Bible is that it is completely honest about what took place. And that by Jesus' own volition, he chose to appear to women and then begin to appear to his disciples. Another thing is the emergence of the early church. No one dies for an intentional lie they are aware of. You hear what I just said right now? No one lies, no one dies for an intentional lie. Some people may die for a cause that's not accurate or correct, but if people understand that this is a lie, people really don't die for that lie. But the very fact that people were willing to die early on in the church shows that they apparently believed in something. Something they believed with their whole heart that they were willing to be tortured, impaled, crucified because of this truth. And as people begin to understand the five E's of the resurrection, ladies and gentlemen, what we're going to be doing next is we're going to be taking a good look at some of the eyewitnesses. Some of the eyewitnesses. Take your Bible. Let's go to John chapter 20. What took place 2,000 years ago? What took place 2,000 years ago? The Bible says this in John chapter 20, starting with verse 3. Peter therefore went out. This is right after some of the women had told Peter and John, the tomb is empty. Look what the Bible says. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together. And the other disciple, what did he do? The young one outran Peter, right? He had the oldest one and the youngest one. Came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down, looking in, saw the what? Linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came um, following him, and he went to the tomb. Now notice this. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head. Not lying with the linen cloths, but notice this. What? Folded together in a place by itself. Ladies and gentlemen, when is the last time you actually had a thief come into your house steal your valuables, vacuum your carpet, clean your toilets, and wash your dishes. <laughs> When's the last time you had a thief like that? Yeah, the idea of it seems very absurd. And if someone stole the body of Jesus, if the whole thing was a big fabrication, ladies and gentlemen, they would not take time to fold the linen cloth and place it neatly on the stone shelf that was inside that tomb. But what is so remarkable is this. Let's keep reading. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple came to the tomb first, went in. Also, he saw and he what? Believed. John believed something took place. Peter believed something supernatural took place. Although they did not believe that Jesus resurrected, the Bible says they did not know the scripture that he would rise again, but they knew something took place, something quite remarkable. And so here's the situation. John gets there, he looks in, he's scratching his head, he sees the stone shelf where the body was supposed to be. He looks in, first of all, the tombstone is just rolled away. And as he walks in, he looks, and there he sees the grave clothes folded. And not, the, not just they're folded, 
but that they're separated. This does not sound like some criminal. This does not sound like a Roman soldier or the Romans. In fact, if this was something that was designed to place the, the disciples in a bad light, ladies and gentlemen, the clothes would be everywhere. It would sound like there was some, some kind of struggle taking place, some kind of quick snatch and grab. But the very fact that things were placed neatly, something else took place. Now, what is so interesting is this. This is where it starts getting very, very interesting. Jesus resurrects from the grave. And where do the grave clothes stand? Where do the grave clothes stay? They stay in the tomb. Did you know when you actually look at the story of Lazarus, there's a parallel there with the story of Lazarus. And you know what happens in the story of Lazarus? Lazarus gets called from the grave. And Jesus says, hey, he calls out Lazarus. He says, Lazarus, in John chapter 11, come forth. And the Bible's very explicit about this. It says, Lazarus comes out with the grave clothes, bound. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, when Lazarus came out of that tomb, what was still upon him? All the grave clothes. In fact, the Bible even says the, the, the head cloth was still upon him. And Jesus actually had to tell all the people around him, loose him from those grave clothes. However, when you're looking at the life of Jesus, where are those grave clothes? They're folded, and where are they? They're still in the grave. Now, there's something very remarkable here. There's a lesson for us, ladies and gentlemen, and this is very powerful. Don't miss this. Lazarus resurrected, but he would die again. You hear what I just said? Lazarus resurrected, but he would die again. In fact, if you go to Larnaca, there is a grave that says, Lazarus, Bishop of Larnaca, twice dead. Twice dead. He came out with those grave clothes because death would still be upon him one day. But the very fact Jesus left those grave clothes in the tomb was showing that he defeated the power of death. Can you say amen to that? And that is what is so remarkable about this first picture that we understand when it comes to the resurrection, that Jesus destroyed death. Amen? He put to death, death. And we as believers can have hope because Jesus resurrected from the grave that one day when Jesus comes back the second time, we will be part of that resurrection. Amen? And by the way, you want to know what the first priority of God is when he comes back? What's the very first priority? The dead in Christ rise first. You want to know why? It even says first in pla placing an emphatic or a sort of emphasis upon the resurrection of the dead. The Bible says the dead don't praise him. The dead can't give worship to God. And do you know what God has been missing? He has been missing the communion of Abraham. He has been missing the communion of all his people that have passed away. And the very first priority God has when he comes back is to resurrect all those who were faithful to him. Can you say amen to that? So as we begin to understand this first picture, we need to talk to another eyewitness, ladies and gentlemen. Her name is Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. Quite a very interesting witness. And as we put her up on the stand, we're going to be discovering some unusual characteristics about her life. Mary here is on the stand. And as Mary is there, the question begins to come out. First, what kind of life did Mary live? 
What kind of life did Mary live, ladies and gentlemen? She was a prostitute. What else do we know about her? There were seven demons, right? What else? I'm going deaf right now. I don't know what's happening. No, we're talking about Mary Magdalene. Yeah, different Mary. Mary Magdalene, the Bible says all sorts of things about her. She didn't listen to her sister, first of all, right? But she listened to Jesus. She was somebody who was not perfect. And you know what happened? When Jesus wanted to give a witness of his resurrection, you know what kind of person he chose? The worst witness in the world. In fact, look what the Bible says about this witness. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, first day of the week, he appeared what? First to who? Mary Magdalene. Now, notice what the Bible says. Notice the reputation it attaches to this witness. Out of whom he cast what? Ladies and gentlemen, do you know the person Jesus used to be his first primary witness? A woman who was the perfect habitat for the devil himself. He chose somebody who was enemy territory at one time. Someone who had seven demons in her. And what is so remarkable is what we are looking at is the heart of God right here. Do you know what you are seeing right here and what this gospel is emphatically trying to place before the, receive, the, the believers? Is grace. Amen? You ready for this powerful thought now? Jesus did not appear to Peter first. Peter would be one of the leaders in the early church. He would not be the leader but he would be one of the leaders in the early church. Out of all the disciples, he seems during the life of Christ to be one that takes a, a, a great leadership role. Jesus does not appear to him first. Okay, you just wait. You're going to hear something. Jesus does not appear to his disciples first, the 12 disciples, or I should say the 11 disciples. I mean, think about it. These men were to be the early church leaders. They were to lead out in the Pentecostal experience that was about to take place. Yet he does not appear to them first. Are you ready for this one? Jesus does not even go to the Father first. Think about all the people and all the beings that Jesus could have said, you know what, it is of primary importance that I go here first. You would say, well, obviously God the Father has priority over the disciples. But even before Jesus takes off to appear before the Father, to present before him the great sacrifice, he appears to Mary. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, I'll say it again, there's hope for your life. Amen. amen? If Satan has made your life, he has made who you are, your body, enemy territory at one time, God is able to reach in and deliver you from the devil. Amen? Amen? And I love what the book Desire of Ages says right here. It's so full of grace, so powerful. When to human eyes her case seemed hopeless, Christ saw in Mary, this is powerful, capabilities for good. When people are looking at you and say, oh, there's no hope for that person, guess what? God still sees the potential in you. Amen? 
he saw the better traits of her character. The plan of redemption had invested humanity with great possibilities, and in Mary, these possibilities were to be realized. Though his gra through his grace, she, she became a partaker of the divine nature. The one who had fallen and whose mind had been a habitation of demons was brought very near to the Savior in fellowship and ministry. Jesus knows the circumstances of every soul. Of how many souls? Every. That means each one of you. He knows your circumstance. You may say, I am sinful, very sinful. You may be, that may be the truth, that you are a great sinner. And it may be the truth you have violated God's law over and over and over and over again. You may be sinful, very sinful, but the worse you are. I love this part right here. But the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. Amen? Amen? The worse you are, the more you need Jesus. And you know what the devil tells you? The worse you are, the more you better stay away from Jesus. That's exactly right. The devil is a liar. And times in my life where I have fallen and I felt like, God, I've just separated myself from you, and the thoughts begin to hit me, God, can you forgive me? And I'll ask for forgiveness, and I don't feel forgiven at that moment, and so I'll say, God, please forgive me again. And you just have this burden of guilt that's upon you. I remember I, I called up my friend one day, and she said, Christian mom, and I begin to talk with her, and the first thing she said to me after I told her, she says, the devil is a liar. He wants you to believe that you cannot be forgiven, that God's grace cannot restore you from where you came from to where you're supposed to be. He does not tell, this is interesting, but the worse you are, the more you need Jesus. He turns no weeping, crying, contrite one away. He does not tell to any that he might reveal. God knows your secrets, and he is well able to reveal those dark, sinful secrets. But he does not reveal it. You can trust Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jesus could have revealed all of Judas's deceptions, but he did not. Let's continue. He does not tell, not, he does not tell to any that he might reveal, but he bids to every trembling soul, take courage. Freely he will pardon to all who come to him for forgiveness and restoration. He might wipe this dark spot away from the universe, but he does not do this. He is today standing at the altar of incense, presenting before God the prayer of those who desire his help. Can you say amen to that? Jesus is standing before the Father, and he is interceding. And while you still have breath on your, in your mouth, there is hope for your soul. Amen? And the power of the resurrection, the very fact, just think about this, ladies and gentlemen, the very fact Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene is a testimony of God's great love for the worst of you. Amen? Amen? For the worst of you. All right, let's go to another band of witnesses. The disciples, the disciples. Jesus, after he then appears to Mary Magdalene, he says something quite interesting before he's about to appear before the Father. Look what he tells Mary Magdalene, found in John chapter 20, verse 17. This is very powerful. He says this to Mary Magdalene. But go to who? Go to who? By the way, when did this paragraph take place? After the death and resurrection of Christ. Do not forget that, okay? 
Prior to the death of Christ, Jesus would call, he would say to his servants in John chapter 13, he says, you're my servants. And then in John chapter 15, you know what he says to those same disciples? I don't just call you servants, I call you friend. But then after his death, you know what he says? Go tell my what? Brethren. What kind of people do you call brethren, ladies and gentlemen? Family. Family. Notice the new language in which Jesus is speaking right after his resurrection. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to what? Your father. If you have the same father, what's that implying? You're related. You're related. Look what he says right here. I'm going to my father and to your father and to my God and what? Your God. Just think about this, ladies and gentlemen. What Jesus was saying right here is that the family of earth and the family of heaven have become reconciled because of the blood of Jesus. Can you say amen to that? And that's why Jesus could speak in this new extraordinary language because the price was paid. The great price was paid for humanity. And if anybody is willing to accept it, you may become an adopted son or daughter of God. Amen? Amen. An adopted son or daughter of God. And it doesn't matter how old you are. God still calls you into that special fellowship. God is wanting to prepare you for heaven. One day there's going to be a great reunion. Amen? And the family of God... The one in heaven and the one, the redeemed from the earth, will be united together again. And this is so powerful when you begin to realize this. But there is another point that we need to understand about this resurrection. The final point. When you study the scriptures, the Bible begins to reveal something extraordinary that is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. In other words, another kind of event... Take a good look at what the Bible says right here. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. But he, because he continues forever, or another translation says, because he lives forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always, what? Lives to make what? intercession for them. Ladies and gentlemen, one of the reasons why Jesus rose from the grave is because the work of salvation was not done. There was still another phase. And Jesus lives today. He broke the power of death, the power of the grave, to continue on to the next phase of ministry, and that is the mighty intercession of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary. Amen? And this is what else is tied. Look what the Bible says right here in Hebrews chapter, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. It is Christ who died and furthermore also is what? Again, you see this resurrection theme attached to something else. Who is even at the right hand of who? God who also makes what? Intercession for us. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus broke the power of death and the grave to start his work of intercession. Amen? Amen? It was love that took him to the grave, and love that took him out of that grave. Love for you. Amen? Amen? Jesus lives. Our God lives. And this is what we can rejoice in. In his little book, Countdown, G.B. Hardy says this. Something very powerful here. He's given us some thought-provoking questions about the resurrection. He says, there are but two essential requirements. Number one, has anyone cheated death? 
and proved it. Has anyone cheated death and proved it? I never forgot one day we were passing out some glow literature one Sabbath afternoon in the series um, lot over at the plaza. And as we were, everybody was out there passing out gold literature, I was walking behind and I noticed this dumpster behind one of the stores. And some men were there and they were just like smoking some weed, trying to be all cool over there. But anyways, so I was looking at that and I was thinking to myself, you know, I, I know Jesus died for those people too, right? I just don't want to lose my life in the process of talking to them, right? But they're smoking weed, and there everybody else is just passing out literature. And I was about to walk away, and I'm like, Lord, I know you'll find some other witness. But God just laid it on my heart, go back and go talk to them. So I said, okay. Went over to them, handed some literature to them. And uh, the, the three that were there, there was four, but three took the literature, and they said, thanks, man. And um, it was so funny, when I actually popped, walked up to them, they, they took the, the weed and threw it down and were just stomping it down and just, you know, maybe thought I was like an Indian cop or something. Um, so what happened? They're Indian cops. So what? So <laughs> one maybe I know of. Okay. And so what happens is, as I'm passing out literature to the three, the fourth one, he doesn't want to take it. He's like, man, I don't want that kind of stuff. He's an older gentleman, really scraggly. And he's like, I don't want any of that religious literature. And I said, well, have you ever read that? And he's like, no. He's like, I don't need to. And he's like, I'm actually the son of a minister. Can you believe it? I'm the son of a pastor. And I don't believe any of this stuff. And as he was saying that, I was thinking to myself, okay, God, give me the right words. And then he says, I don't want to read any of this stuff. He's like, let me just tell you something. And as he was speaking, he was just getting louder and louder. You know, people like that, the more they're talking, and they just get louder and louder. And he was just getting louder and louder. And I was just like... Okay, this is going to be very uncomfortable right now. My backup consists of five elderly ladies in the parking lot. You know what I mean? So anyway, so... Um, so okay, let's keep going. Okay, so what happened is, as he was getting louder and louder, he then said this. He's like, let me just tell you something. He's like, nobody's come back from death. Nobody's come down from heaven and shown us what it's all about. He says, nobody has done this ever. And then I looked at him, and I said, you're wrong. There is one. And as soon as I said this, he knew exactly what I was saying, being the son of a minister. And as soon as I said this, he knew what I was saying. I knew what he was saying. And as soon as I said, there is one, he looked down like this and just was nodding his head. And he became quiet the rest of that conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus lives. Amen? Amen? Our God lives. Let's continue with this statement right here. There are but two essential requirements. Number one, has anybody cheated death? Has anybody cheated death, ladies and gentlemen? Amen. And that's Jesus, right? And proved it, absolutely. And number two, is it available to me? Is it available to me? Amen? Now watch what he says next. Here is the complete record. Confucius' tomb, occupied. Buddha's tomb, occupied. Muhammad's tomb, occupied. Jesus' tomb, empty. Amen. Right? Praise the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea got his tomb back, right? Because Jesus rose again. Because Jesus rose from the grave is why we can rise from the grave one day. Amen? Because Jesus defeated the power of death is why one day we can share in the fruits of that victory. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
that Christ is the first fruits of those who rise again, but each one in its own order. Christ, the first fruits. He already rose from the grave. And then the Bible says, and those that are his at his coming. Jesus rose from the grave to give us the hope that one day he will call forth his sleeping saints and we can experience that power. God is calling us to partake of the blessings of that beautiful resurrection event. Amen? This weekend, while you're participating in the various events and you have moments of quiet time, take time to reflect upon what Jesus did for you. 2,000 years ago, springtime, Jesus was sleeping at this time in the grave, keeping the Sabbath in death. But Saturday night would soon come. Sunday morning would soon come where he would rise from the grave and break the power of Satan permanently. We serve a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's bow our heads as we pray and rejoice in that beautiful thought. The Lord lives. Blessed be his name. Father in heaven, we just thank you that because you resurrected is why we are not lost in the darkness of this world. We thank you, Lord, that 2,000 years ago, you were on this exact same planet, the same ground, and you were sleeping. Thank you, Father, that that sleep was not eternal and that you live today to make intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, that it was love that sent you to the grave, but it was love that pulled you out as well. Father, thank you for the most powerful force in the universe, your love. And today, throughout the rest of the Sabbath, may we rejoice in that great love. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.